Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Gyanatimarandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Yakshura Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Anchakalpa Trubius Chakripas and Jubeva Chapatitanam Bhavanibyo Vaishnavibyo Namo Namaha Okay, so we are beginning a new chapter, chapter seven of the eighth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And little introduction here to the chapter. So in this part of the eighth canto, um, Krishna is encouraging the demigods to cooperate with the demons to churn the ocean of milk. And we're introduced to the concept of, um, of the Supreme Lord uh, doing pastimes simply for his pleasure. So while it's true that, you know, the churning of the milk ocean was meant to protect the demigods from the powerful de- uh, enemies, yet, you know, in a really charming way, uh, Krishna's uh, will act uh, particularly for his own pleasure, and that we see here. The Bhagavatam earlier described this way back in the second canto where Prabhupada wrote that the demigods and the demons were churning the ocean of milk with the Mandara mountain in order to extract nectar. The mountain moved back and forth, scratching the back of Lord Tortoise, who, while partially sleeping, was experiencing an itching sensation. <laughs> so... Um, so, you know, ultimately, our greatest fortune and also our natural position is to be concerned only with giving pleasure to, to, the, to, to God, to Krishna. Um, and when our heart is pure and our love for Krishna is really mature, then we're, we're motivated by spontaneous attraction and love for Krishna. And then we can, like, you know, really understand and enter like just have led to people in the room. Uh, we can really understand the mood of the pastimes of Krishna with the Vrindavan devotees. <clears throat> that will be explained two more cantos from now in the 10th cantos. But first, here, uh, Sukadeva Goswami is telling Maharaj Prikshit about this, you know, awe-inspiring pastime, Leela, uh, the history of the churning of the ocean of milk. <clears throat> Just, oh, Henry, I'll make you a co-host in case more people come. Okay, there we go. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, sometimes Krishna acts in, in count, he, he does act in countless ways, sometimes, you know, simple, simple ways. But in this churning of the ocean of milk pastime, uh, he acts in, rather, in really unique, captivating ways to accomplish one of his purposes, okay, to deliver nectar to the demigods. Um, and he's appeared in all kinds of really interesting ways already in the eighth canto. And now he's going to appear as Korma, the tortoise, the Mohini, uh, the, the female form of the Lord, and, and Vamanadev, and Matsya. Later, all of these you know, amazing um, pastimes that are leading us up to hear about his appearance in the tenth canto in his unlimitedly beautiful, original, 
human-like form of Krishna, the all-attractive personality of God. Okay, that's my little intro to this chapter. Now let us begin. Hmm. Sukadeva Goswami said, O best of the Kurus, Maharaj Prikshit, the demigods and demons summoned Vasuki, king of the serpents, requesting him to come and promising to give him a share of the nectar. They coiled, Vasuki was this great snake. They coiled Vasuki around the Mandara mountain as a churning rope. And with great pleasure, they endeavored to produce nectar by churning the ocean of milk. I'm gonna focus for just a minute on this word pleasure because um, when we're not Krishna conscious or for the average person, um, we mainly think of the pleasure coming from the fruit, right? So you're working hard in a factory. It's not exactly the nicest thing in the world, right? But you know you're getting money to support your family or to you know buy uh, tickets to that concert or whatever. So you're thinking of the fruit will give you pleasure. So that's what we mean by fruitive activities. We're doing an activity to enjoy the fruit. Um, but bhakti or devotional activities the act itself, the act is the act itself is meant for pleasing Krishna. And so that's the focus. It's not the result, it's the act itself. You're getting so much pleasure because you're thinking of your lover, you're thinking of Krishna, you're doing it with devotion, and Krishna's reciprocating with you. And the result, that we leave up to Krishna. We're not so attached to the result. And if, you know, if the result is, uh, you know, we are a millionaire, that's great. And if the result is, you know, we're, we're just, you know, making ends meet, that's okay. But the, it's the act that gives pleasure and the result is unimportant, whereas, or not unimportant, but is up to Krishna. Whereas for a materialistically minded person, the act isn't so important. The fruit, the result is what's important. So that, um, that comes out in this word uh, with great pleasure, thinking about the pleasure of producing the nectar. So before we move on, are there any, any thoughts on that? It wasn't one of the things I asked you to read, but I uh, thought you might be interested. Good morning, Nandimuki. Good morning, David. Uh, wasn't the snake the one that, uh, that, uh, the Supreme Lord reside, lays on in the milk ocean anyway? Different like snake. Oh, it's a different snake? <laughs> that's okay. Sheshanag. Yeah, that's Sheshanag. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Now I know. It's yeah. Vasuki. Vasuki isn't quite on that level. <laughs> okay. Uh, anything else on this? But anyway, I hope by now, whenever we see the word fruit of activity, which I know for years bewildered me, what does it mean? Hopefully now it's really clear. It's that you're, you're the, a person who's concerned with the fruit of their activity more than the actual activity itself. And you know, uh, <laughs> most of it, like I, so I work for the federal government. I probably wouldn't work there if I wasn't getting paid. Raghunandapur, would you work your job if you weren't getting paid? Oh, Prabhu. No, <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> But in bhakti, you know, we may need some maintenance and things like that. That's another thing. But in bhakti, we, uh, that's not our focus. Our focus is in pleasing Krishna. Yeah. 
Okay, text number two. The personality of God, Ajita, another name for Krishna, uh, grasped the front portion of the snake, and then the demigod followed. The leaders of the demons thought it unwise to hold the tail, the inauspicious portion of the snake. Instead, they wanted to hold the front, which had been taken by the personality of God and the demigods, because that portion was auspicious and glorious. Thus, the demons, on the plea that they were all highly advanced students of Vedic knowledge and were all famous for their birth and activities, protested that they wanted to hold the front of the snake. <laughs> so the purport, Prabhupada writes, the demons thought that the front of the snake was auspicious and that catching hold of that portion would be more chivalrous. Moreover, daityas, which is the name for, which is actually the Sanskrit for demons, must always do the opposite of the demigods. That is their nature. We have actually seen in relation to our Krishna conscious movement, we are advocating cow protection and encouraging people to drink more milk and eat palatable preparations made of milk. But the demons, just to protest such proposals are claiming that they are advanced in scientific knowledge as described here in the words, Swadhyaya Shuta Sampana. They say that according to their scientific way, they have discovered that milk is dangerous and that beef obtained by killing cows is very nutritious. This difference of opinion will always continue. Indeed, it has existed since days of yore. Millions of years ago, there was the same competition the demons, as a result of their so-called Vedic study, preferred to hold the side of the snake near the mouth. The Supreme Personality of God had thought it wise to catch hold of the dangerous part of the snake and allow the demons to hold the tail, which was not dangerous. But because of a competitive desire, the demons thought it wise to hold the snake near the mouth. If the demigods were going to drink poison, the demons would, would resolve, why should we not share the poison and die gloriously by drinking it? <laughs> So um, we're all familiar with um, reverse psychology, and that's what's going on here. <laughs> I thought I'd play just like a two-minute clip of a, of a reverse psychology as a salesperson, just to give you a little taste of reverse psychology here. So, whoops, that was the wrong thing. Press the wrong thing. I'll... I'll um, Where is it? So I love behavioral psychology. That's my little hobby on the side. And I wanted to share a sales technique that I know all of us have to sell. We all have to market. We all have to sell also. I want to share a little behavioral technique you can use in sales. And it's a dramatically effective way for actually closing sales. There's a traditional method, perhaps you've used a variant of this. If, if we were in a, a sales negotiation or something, and you're the prospect, I'm the uh, vendor, I would say, so after I do my pitch, I'd say, so where do you think we stand on a one to 10 scale? And you come back and say, yeah, I'm feeling a six, maybe a seven. And then I've been trained to say, what do I have to do to make this a 10 and wow you? You know, how do we get it up there together? Human tendency is when you're in a position, I'm in a different position, if I suggest you go somewhere, you're more likely to go the opposite way. That's really me like saying, you smoke? You shouldn't smoke, you're killing yourself. And you're like, screw you, and you like light one, blow it in my face, <laughs> right? That's the natural human response is to resist suggestion. It's a natural habit. 
Yet in the sales mode, so many of us say, well, you're only a six or seven. What do I need to do to make you feel great? It doesn't work. It actually moves people down in the scale like, oh, here comes the big manipulation. Screw you. I'm a four now. Here's the method that does work. When a prospect goes to me, uh, comes to me and says, uh, and we, we negotiate, and I say, so where, where do you think you stand on a one to ten? They say, I think I'm a six or seven. My response is, that's kind of interesting. From your body language, the way you're looking at me, I, I was actually sensing you were at a three or four. Why did you pick a number so high? I pick a number lower than the one they set, and now their natural tendency is to push up, to go the opposite way I go. So when I say to customers, I think, you know, from your body language and the, the way we're talking, I really thought you were lower, three or four. Why did you pick a number so high? They say, well, you know, I, thought, I think it's six or seven because of this and this and this, and they've primed themselves to go higher. Many times in those negotiations, they say, you know, when I think about it, I think I'm more like an eight or maybe even a nine on proceeding with this project. It's this reverse technique. Thank you. Okay. We're here. Uh, one second. Here's another ex example. Um, let me just show you this. <laughs> Don't buy this jacket. Uh, so reverse psychology, you know, we're probably familiar with it, but uh, so that's what it originated millions of years ago with Krishna and the, and the demons and Krishna saying, uh, you know, no, no, don't do it. By the way, um, I did want to show you one other thing. I was maybe, I, I don't know if any of you have um, been to uh, Thailand, but I was going through the airport this is a few years ago and i was shocked to see this 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 huge display in the middle of the uh bangkok airport can you see that it's the churning it's exactly what we're we're uh we're reading about right now the demigods here the demons here uh the lord on top here uh, we'll be reading about this later. That uh, uh, Korma here, and there's Vasuki, the, uh, the big snake, and it's all next to the Gucci shop. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I was I was I, I I was really tired. I think I was um, on Thai Airlines, and I was just uh, transiting, and I I was like pinching myself, like, is this real? <laughs> you know, I'm going through the airport, and here's a scene from the Bhagavatam. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really, uh, really interesting. <clears throat> so that's the point about reverse psychology. There's other things here. Let me see if there's something else. Oh, we hear, we hear an example, a beautiful example of reverse psychology by Rupa Goswami, right? Prabhupada writes, Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada warns us not to go near the banks of the Yamuna if we at all want to remain enamored of our family attachments and our, of our friends and of our different worldly attachments. Because by the bank of the Jamuna, Lord Krishna is there playing his flute so nicely. His heavenly blue-tinged body with its lotus garland. So Rupa Goswami is warning us, don't go near the Jamuna, because if you do, Krishna will steal your heart. So. 
even uh, so reverse psychology is used uh, in in a number of places. Okay, now later in the purport, <coughs> the next paragraph, Prabhupada writes, in regards to the word Swadaya Sruta Sampana Prakyata Janma Karma B, another question may be raised. If one is actually educated in Vedic knowledge, is famous for performing prescribed activities, and has been born in a great aristocratic family, why should he be called a demon? <laughs> right? So, you know, they know Sanskrit. They uh, are doing, you know, pious activities, not necessarily by, devotional, but, you know, uh, and they're coming a big fam uh, famous family. Why should they be called a demon? The answer is that one may be highly educated and one may have been born in an aristocratic family. But if he is godless, if he does not listen to the instructions of God, then he's a demon. There are many examples in history of men like Hiranyakashipu, Ravana, and Kangsa, who were well-educated, who were born in aristocratic families and who were very powerful and chivalrous and fighting, but who, because of deriding the Supreme Personality of Godhead, were called rakshashas or demons. One may be very educated, but if one has no sense of Krishna consciousness, no obedience to the Supreme Lord, he is a demon. So, um, The Prabhupada here is addressing the question of who deserves to be defined as a demon since, uh, you know, because we, we know labeling people uh, with such a pejorative word can seem unfair. Um, you know, after all, asuras, you know, uh, may oppose suras, but many of them have, you know, signs of good qualities, good, good culture. Uh, and the same is true of people today, right? Um, at the same time, uh, we, you know, we have the, in the Bible, right, there's the wolf in sheep's, in sheep's clothing, right, uh, that, you know, or I remember <laughs> years ago when um, we were taking long drives and trying to keep my son a little... Um, uh, entertained, you know, like driving from DC to uh, uh, Gainesville, Florida, you know. So, and, and he liked comedy. And, you know, uh, I guess he was probably a young teenager or something. And I was thinking, God, all the most of the comics today, they use the four letter words like every, every other sentence, right? So, obviously, this was uh, at a certain time because I said, well, there's one person who's really clean and really is a great comedian and, you know, very clean in his activities and in the way his speech and his name is Bill Cosby. So, you know, at the time I didn't, we didn't know what we know now about Bill Cosby. <laughs> right. And he had great, you know, he had great things. Like there was one about um, a, um, a trip to the dentist, you know, that was, and it was great fun for a 12 year old or something like that. But, you know, Lo and behold, you know, two or three years later, you find out, well, you know, wool, what is it? Wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> and like, God, who can you, who can you present these days? You know, <laughs> it was a real uh, letdown when, uh, when, you know, all these things came out about him. <clears throat> but just as an example. So what we want to try to do in our lives is... Um, you know, the external and the internal, they, 
they match. We're not just all pious, pious, you know, coming to the temple on Sundays and then the uh, other six days we're all, you know, doing all kinds of things. Um, but we make sure we have big tea lock on and a nice dhoti and kurta or a nice sari. The temple, which is better than, yeah, it's nice, but you know what, you know what my point, my point. <laughs> so any questions either on, or comments on reverse psychology or uh, this labeling of uh, Asura? Well, um, just like in the Bible, uh, Satan was actually probably the number two person in heaven <clears throat> until he rebelled. And then the, the way they cast in the Bible is he got cast down to into hell, right? And that's his dominion, right? But then the story of Job is like Satan just pops up in an assembly and, and God is like real laid back, like, hey, Satan, so what are you doing here? You know, what's, what's up, you know, and like that, real cool. But uh, <clears throat> but it just demonstrates that even though Satan knew like a lot of what God knew, that's why he thought like, well, you know, I can do this, right? He was that high. He knew like a large percentage of what God knows and he still does. But now he's a demon. Uh, because uh, he didn't want to respect the way you know it should be, so that's it. He's a demon now. <laughs> and and uh, Ranga, were you going to say something? I saw body language, or no, maybe not. But no, 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 okay, yeah. And Maya or illusion, you know, the personification of illusion is Maya is a great devotee of Krishna. So it's a little different. So even you know the uh, the devil in. Uh, if we try to make it draw an analogy, the devil is also a great devotee of, of uh, God, but has a thankless, Prabhupada would use the word thankless task um, to keep people in illusion who want to be in illusion. You mean Yamaraj? Well, no. uh, I was just kind of, made, no, my, well, Maya, we don't then? equate Yamaraj and Maya. Uh, they're two different people with, um, so the, the maybe the result of Maya is you meet Yamaraj. Maybe that um, if, am I, yeah. my yeah. Right so Maya is equated as the devil. Well, no, I, I, I don't quote me on that. I, I was just trying to perhaps draw a bit of a uh, if, if, if you know, have you read the screw tape? Uh, what is it called? Screw tape letters, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really good book, but <laughs> because um. When you read, so what, for the screw tape letters, for those who don't know, it's uh, the devil and one of the devil's uh, protégés, and a, a, a neo, but like a, a novice devil. And so the devil is training the novice, basically, again, using our language of putting people into illusion. And it's a brilliant book by C.S. Lewis. Um, and it really, a devotee reads this and says, oh, yeah, it's Maya. Like, you know, I would say 75, 80% of it just reads like something out of the Bhagavatam. <laughs> would you say, uh, Andy? You know, I, I can't remember the yeah. details. It's been a while since I read it. But, it's, but I mean, uh, what impresses me about Krishna consciousness <clears throat> is basically a lot of these roles, traditional roles like Yamaraj, they are devotees. Even Maya is a devotee. Yeah, Maya's a devotee. They're doing like kind of the dirty work that has to be done, but they know what's right and what's not. Yeah, and and it's a little bit different in other religions, and that that's what I like about it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I mean, I, I, I'm not making a theological point. I'm just saying that the Maya, what we would call Maya, and what we see as the devil, 
um, seem, there seems to be a correlation. Yeah, a correlation, yeah. In the 70s, there was that TV show, The Devil Made Me Do It. The Devil Made Me Do It. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Hindus don't claim Maya made me do it. They know that they did it because of karma, right? Right, right. But they say, well, Maya's around and that influenced me, but it didn't, Maya doesn't make yeah. me do it. Yeah. And there's so many mechanisms also. Maya acts through the three modes of material nature. Right? And once we, our main thing is our desire. And that's what we, why we have classes like this. One of the main reasons for a class like this is to increase our desire to serve Krishna and to not serve illusion. That's because uh, because once once you desire something, then Krishna fulfills that desire through Maya, through the modes of material nature. It's so, so difficult, dangerous when you let your mind drift. Sometimes. Tell me about it, Henry. Uh, you sound like you're speaking from experience, though. No. Hi, <laughs> Krishna. Yes, but you're always in the mode of goodness. You're always by the Potomac River. Uh, yes, but you're right. And that's why Krishna says, chanchala himana Krishna, that the mind is chanchala, so flickering. And it grabs onto something, and it's so hard to let go. I read this uh, um, uh, for something for work. Let me read it to you real quickly, because I, I found it. I think it could help. It can be, it can be helpful for devotees also. Um, Maybe some of you are familiar with uh, Brene Brown, and she writes, um, we should be clear on whose opinion of us matters to us. We should seek feedback from those people, even if it is painful. Don't grab hurtful comments and pull them close to you by rereading them or ruminating on them, right? Someone says something about you or you see something on the internet. Don't play with them by rehearsing your, forgive my French, badass comeback. And whatever you do, don't pull hatefulness close to your heart. Let what's unproductive and hurtful drop at the feet of your unarmored self. And no matter how much your self-doubt wants to scoop up the criticism and snuggle with the negativity so it can confirm its worst fears, uh, or how eager the shame gremlins are to use the uh, to use the hurt to forfeit your armor. She, she uses the armor um, analogy a lot. Take a deep breath and find the strength to leave what's mean spirited on the ground. Thought that was a a good uh, a nice strong statement there. Other. Questions, comments, thoughts on this, uh, either reverse psychology or labeling or Maya. Oh, I, I didn't see your hand up. Yes, Dean. Oh, that's all right. Um, well, I have a question that regard, regarding Maya, and maybe just your experience a bit. So I've never experienced so. it. I'm totally <laughs> yeah. In the last five um, minutes, I have not experienced Maya. <laughs> yeah. So if I can digress a little bit, so uh, you know I'm a I'm a super visual person okay. um, in learning and everything, and you know I, I've I like 
art a lot. I always have, you know, kind of runs in the family. My grandfather was a bit of an artist and this and that. Um, anyway, the, the reason I bring this up is like, I feel like I am extremely focused on visual things. And for instance, I, you know, really like making the house, Canary Nice house look pretty and things of that nature. And it's definitely a, a, like a strong, I, I don't know if addiction is the right word, but it's, it's, it's a strong motive. And, you know, we yeah, this, well, let's call it a gift. Well, I mean, it, is it really, I, um, you know, because it, it keeps you, um, I mean, it's Maya for sure. And, and it's the same thing that will also kind of draw me to, you know, um, buying things for the house or things of that nature. So it seems like a, a very long process it would take, I mean, almost insurmountable to slowly wean yourself off of that. And, um, you know, it seems like you're someone that succeeded in doing that. And I was wondering, to, to a large extent anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, like, the question that I have is, was that something that you, you felt like was innate within you? And then you, you went to the, you know, you, know, you picked up um, the, the philosophy? Or is it something that you have been slowly uh working towards over time and had success in doing if that makes sense well let's uh use your example though first um and you remember we, we've talked about hegel before right uh, <clears throat> thesis antithesis synthesis uh so in your case uh love beauty mm -hmm. and and beautiful surroundings um the antithesis is simplify, keep it, you know, don't be so focused on it. The synthesis is have beautiful things that are related to Krishna mm -hmm. and, um, and make our surroundings and our home gorgeous uh, and Krishna conscious. Just like Henry here, he um, spent decades um, buying B.G. Sharma paintings, the paintings by one of the most famous Rajasthani artists in India. And, uh, and he collected and he collected and he would go see him every year and bargain uh, <laughs> the cost and things like that. And he, his house, um, um, especially his previous house, but even now, uh, is filled with just these incredible, incredible paintings of Krishna by B.G. Sharma. So much so that... Uh, they were um, taken up by a very well-known uh, art gallery in Dallas, and there was a display of them for you know uh -huh. quite some time. Yeah. So, so he his house was just gorgeous, and uh, uh, Jamuna Devi, the famous Jamuna, <clears throat> lived in his house for several years, um, and it was, you know, and it, it, it was gorgeous. So, but it was all focused on Krishna. Mm -hmm. um and, and you know, so so we don't really have to give up things we just have to uh the word that Prabhupada liked to use was dovetail um i think the actual dovetail is like it's a, it's sometimes a, a word that's used in construction um where you don't use like an uh a, like in um i use when i 
joined Krishna Conscious, I, I joined the Detroit Temple. I don't know if you've heard, you're familiar with that temple, but it's um, it's a beautiful mansion by uh, built by Lawrence Fisher, who maybe older people would remember bodies by Fisher. He made car bodies. He was super rich. And so uh, two of the rooms in the mansion, uh, that's now a temple, uh, the floors were all dovetailed. They didn't use one piece of nail or anything. Everything just fit together almost like a jigsaw puzzle. Right, and it was you know very very costly process. Raghunandam, you've been there, right? Raghunandam, yeah. So you may remember up on the the top, the the first floor upstairs, the the big hall room, and the one next to that. Yeah, the floors are like that. Um, so we can fit our gifts. That's why you, that's why I wanted to use the word gift. Now, now we do have to make some distinction, like you know if if we spend all of our money on even beautiful art for Krishna and we, you know, can't feed our child or something. It's like, well, duh, you know, <laughs> um, but we, but we can, as a general rule, um, take our interests and use them in Krishna's service. You know, like I, I said, a general rule, like if you're a butcher, really you should get another job, right? Or if you're, if your hobby is hunting, you probably should learn another hobby, but a hobby like, keeping things beautiful. I mean, uh, another positive way to look at it is when our surroundings are very much in the mode of goodness, very clean and neat and beautiful, it makes the mind peaceful and it helps uh, us focus on, on more subtle things and ultimately on Krishna. So, you know, I, I kind of wish I had a, a piece of your habit. <laughs> Um, cause I'm a little bit like, eh, whatever. Well, it, it, the, the problem is it, it can, um, <laughs> spill over into consumption type activity. Yeah. You know, I, I have, I have now I'll say like one thing I don't, I'm not into cars so much, I, you know, so I can imagine having my little Prius till, you know, as long as possible. So that there is some success I've had tempering it but you know like just like andy i've got this one painting and I, and I paid a lot of money for it prior to meeting the canary she probably would have thought i was crazy but i I'll also say i i like when i'm in the house i've always taken inspiration from it it actually does have kind of a I won't say krishna conscious theme but it's there's a chinese artist growing up in us who, who lived in australia and it, and it clearly has you know um, similar yeah. So, uh, uh, but you can reduce, and uh, let's. I uh, don't use me as an example. Let's. If, I hope I'm not embarrassing, but let's use Henry. Um, Henry uh, had a mansion uh, on uh, Embassy Row. If you know that part of DC, very one, uh, very huh. beautiful place. It was given to him by his family. Um, he comes from. A, yeah, that's that's a beautiful area. Yeah. We we live when I grew up lived near it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so at one time, and it wasn't easy at first because he had lived there 50 years of his life, he decided to downsize and, and get a smaller place. He also was very into very, very nice cars. Uh, can I say Henry or no? Yeah. He had this beautiful 1950, was it 64? 1964, you're correct. 64 Rolls Royce, beautiful burgundy red Rolls Royce. Uh, 
And uh, I remember one time he drove it to my brother's house and my brother who lives near the temple, he was like, wow, you know, and every, all of his kids wanted to go on a ride in the Rolls Royce and he used to go to car shows and, and he's always had really, really nice cars. And he downsized and he, uh, he sold that Rolls Royce to somebody actually in England who refurbished it and stuff like that. And, and, you know, he, he just has one, you know, very nice, but simple car now. And he just, you know, as he made advancement in Krishna consciousness, those things became uh, less important to him, Mm -hmm. even though they, they surrounded him his whole life. Yeah, I guess that was a little bit of the question is as you progress in this, do you feel like a tangible weakening of those? Yeah. Uh, I suggest you hang out with Henry and he can guide you. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he's I'm back uh, home, I guess. Like that. Even, even some of his BG Sharmas, he, uh, he gave to some other devotees. Mm-hmm. They I would assume them. these are valuable paintings. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, yeah. So, he's my example of. Uh, of um, practical renunciation, not not like you know, like what I did. I just joined the Brahmacharya Ashram when I was eighteen. You know, dropped out of college and just you know, cold turkey. But he's been you know, just gradually as he's advancing in Krishna consciousness. Dean, I will be in Carmel in August. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, <laughs> hopefully, I won't. <laughs> not not because of you, but just obviously, but because yeah, but you'll this. be here at the end of the month. You'll be in DC, I heard. Dean. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully this, okay. this misadventure will be over by that. Thank you for that question because we got we got we brought out some. But surely, if if I'm here, yeah. But thank you for the question because it brings out some real practical Krishna conscious uh, uh, thoughts and something that we uh, that we all deal with. In, in our own ways. Okay, shall we carry on? <clears throat> We're going up to verse eight. Thus the demons, text four, the demons remain silent, opposing the desire of the demigods. Seeing the demons and understanding their motive, the Supreme Personality of God had smiled. Without discussion, without discussion, he immediately accepted their proposal by grasping the tail of the snake and the demigods followed him. After thus adjusting how the snake was to be held, the sons of Kasyapa, both demigods and demons, began their activities desiring to get nectar by churning the ocean of milk. O son of the Pandu dynasty, when Mandara mountain was thus being used as a churning rod in the ocean of milk, it had no support, and therefore, although held by the strong hands of the demigods and demons, it sank into the water. Because the mountain had been sunk by the strength of providence, that's, and that means ultimately Krishna, the demigods and demons were disappointed and their faces seemed shriveled. Seeing the situation that had been created by the will of the Supreme, the unlimitedly powerful Lord, whose determination is infallible, took the wonderful form of a tortoise, entered the water and lifted the great Mandara mountain. Um, Eight. My, oh, wait, what happened here? Well, wait. That was uh, eight. No, yeah. I know. I know what happened. Somehow I switched to the tenth canto on my computer. Okay, I clicked. Oh, I clicked on something. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, eight. Prabhupada writes. Here is evidence that the supreme personality of God is the supreme controller of everything. As we have previously described, there are two classes of men: the demigods and the demons, and the demigods. But neither of them are supremely powerful. 
okay? Everyone has experienced that hindrances are imposed upon us by the supreme power. Has anyone here not ever experienced hindrances in your life? Andy, no hindrances? You ever feel like you've known people that just cruise through everything, like everything's perfect? <laughs> yeah, I, I always think that that's just a, a facade or, you know, just oh, after our well, I, Eiffel did that. To some extent, I'm sure it is. Eiffel did that. Who? Engineer, I'm sorry, what? The engineer that designed the Eiffel Tower, he brought it in under budget, and they said it couldn't even be done. He brought it in under budget and with no problems and uh, ahead but, of schedule. But did he ever fight with his wife? <laughs> probably, ever, probably. Did he ever break his arm? Yeah, you know, there's, all, there's always hindrances. Yeah, I was, uh, I remember a few, a little while ago, I was, um, listening to uh, Aretha Franklin sing uh, Amazing Grace. And she just has this incredible voice. I mean, Krishna has given her or gave her, now she's no longer, uh, just just incredible, right? And just think, oh, she knows people are so famous. But then you read, you know, she had her first child when she was 12. She had, you know, uh, she said, you know, didn't, you know, she didn't even talk about her first two children and she went for marriage, you know, so, you just, you know, there's no escaping hindrances in the material world, right? Nandi Muki, have you ever had any hindrances in your life? Oh, maybe, I would, maybe she's, she's on mute. But anyway, we all have hindrances, right? And Prabhupada says, everyone has experienced that hindrances are imposed upon us by the supreme power. The demons regard these, but here's the point. The demons regard these hindrances as mere accidents or chance. But devotees accept them to be the act of the supreme ruler and, all, and, all, and of course, our karma as well. When faced with hindrances, therefore, devotees pray to the Lord, tate anukampam sukshamikshamano bunjana evatma kritam vipakam. Devotees endure hindrances, accepting them to be caused by the supreme personality of God and regarding them as benedictions. Demons, however, being unable to understand the supreme controller, regard such hindrances as accidental. Here, of course, the supreme personality of God was present personally. It was by his will that there were hindrances, and by his will, those hindrances were removed. The Lord appeared as a tortoise to support the great mountain. So this is one of our great challenges in spiritual life. Um, how we, you know, we've talked about, we talked about this just last week, so I won't go into detail, but just how uh, we react to challenges in life. Because that, that is really, as the saying goes, where the rubber meets the road. Because we can, we can give classes on this. Um, it's easy to talk. Talk is cheap. But it really comes down to that. What is the uh, reaction time, right, between... When something hindrance comes and we remember it, we remember Krishna. And we remember the philosophy. Now, this is my karma. And don't be upset at the agents of your karma and all those wonderful things. What is the, uh, what's the gap? If the gap is spontaneous, we're pure devotees, right, basically. <laughs> uh, usually the gap is, you know, weeks or days or hours, depending on the situation and, and things like that. But um, because that verse that Prabhupada quotes there in the 10th candle says that if you, if you don't have that gap, if you put that, or another way to look at it, if you put that pause between 
stimulus and response and think of the philosophy and think of Krishna, then you've inherited the kingdom of God. Mukti uh, It's your rightful claim to go back to God. And so it's not easy, but the, the I, I was going to say the cool thing, the nice thing about it, although it may not feel nice at the time, is that we regularly have hindrances. So we get so many opportunities to practice this. We get so many opportunities to practice this. Yeah. So many. And, you know, and everyone has hindrances. If you ever spend any time, you know, with anyone, devotee, a uh, person who hasn't taken the Krishna consciousness yet, and you, and you get beyond how's it going, and they say everything's fine, and you get beyond those kind of readings. No, no, what's what's going on? How are you really? And, and you're, if a person's going to be a little vulnerable, they're going to, you know, give you the, you know, this is going well and this is not going well because it's just the very nature of this world. Yes, Henry put our only freedom lies between freedom and response. <laughs> you know, and, and the, the interesting thing is that Krishna sometimes, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, I just have to give one more Henry story because, you know, he gets rid of his Rolls Royce, right? Then he goes on um, jury duty and he happens to sit next to a guy who uh, owns an old Bentley. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And for like a year, right? A year? Yeah. Henry is keeping that Bentley in his garage. The guy asked him to keep it in his garage. So, you know, so <laughs> Rolls Royce goes out the window. Uh, this old, beautiful, like gray, blue, gray Bentley comes in. You know, so you have to be, sometimes Christian just says, okay, no, now, now that you've renounced it, okay, now have it, right? Um, and even our, our Srila Prabhupada, you know, he, he tried so many things before he uh, came to the West, um, even, even in business, and it went well for a while, and then it didn't go well, and so many different attempts. And then when Krishna wanted, you know, he, he was, I, I mentioned it before, he was, even from an external point of view, he was in Time Magazine's um, 50 people who uh, were successful after the age of 50. So from that point of view, Prabhupada, you know, in 11 years, you know, uh, had proper, 100, over 100 properties all over the world and, you know, millions of dollars in book sales, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's just from a material point of view. So Krishna just, Krishna giveth and Krishna taketh sometimes. And the devotees, challenge is to respond with bhakti in either situation. Any thoughts on this? You know, I was thinking about regretting the past, and I think I heard a devotee say that um, our life must have been absolutely perfect to get us where we are right here today, because we're listening to the Bhagavatam. <laughs> well, that's a nice way to, that's a nice way to put it. And Dana writes, oh man, a test? Yes, Krishna does. Because it's one thing to say I'm a devotee or I'm a, you know, I'm a servant of God. And it's another thing when the, you know, when we actually have to show God that we really are. <laughs> when we come to the fork in the road and we get that, the, there's forks many times a day. Yeah. 
But Krishna is so kind, he keeps on giving us opportunities to serve. <laughs> Dana, it is not just you, I promise. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even uh, I, how many people would love to have the riches of, what was his name, Jeff Bezos or um, Bill Gates? And didn't both of them get divorces recently? Right, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Krishna, Krishna. So how we, um, how we deal with those times, you know, because, um, you know, external circumstances, we talked about this before, they're dictated by our karma and ultimately Krishna's desire, right? But we have our choice. And, and our challenge in difficult situations, accept the process of Krishna consciousness, take shelter of Krishna, and know what Krishna is looking for internally, not, not just, you know, dealing with the externals, uh, you know, um, taking shelter of, of the great devotees that we learn about in the, in the scriptures. Um, and accepting the circumstance, it's not a matter of, of accepting, of stepping back. Uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's a position of active, proactive dependence on Krishna. It means, you know, doing our duty, acting correctly, and trusting the results to Krishna. Um, and so this is an intentional, it's almost aggressive, proactive choice of will. Dana, what is that? Can you quote that thing about uh, the walking blindly? You you know oh. it better than me. Um, it's like um, walking with your eyes closed, but not stumbling. Yes, right. It's in the eleventh canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. That absorbed in devotional service is just like what Dana said. It's uh, walking with your eyes closed without stumbling, because we don't know what Krishna has in store for us, but we're well, I think it's running, isn't it? Or is it walking or running? But either way, yeah. Yeah, it might have been running. Yeah, running. Yeah. It's a very beautiful example given in the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. <clears throat> and also being patient for Krishna's timing. We talked about this before. Krishna has a different watch than we have. Anything else on this? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Nanimuki. Yes, that was heavy hindrance. With one minute myself. Oh, really? Okay. No. But you're boldly have taken yourself off of mute. Interest. Okay. Just on this topic, I'm thinking about uh, the determination that Krishna described in Bhagavad Gita. He said, this is verse 33 of chapter 18. O Prita, that the determination which is unbreakable which is sustained with steadfastness by yoga practice and which thus controls the active activities of the mind, life, and senses is determination and a mode of goodness. It is, I think, determination is one of the, um, I think, essential factor when we are facing hindrance and challenging situation. Yes. Determination. Yes. And taking shelter uh, or rather the determination is connected to taking shelter rather than just gritting our teeth and working on willpower. Um, willpower only gets us so far, far and we all only have a certain amount of reserve willpower. And after when that's depleted, 
it takes some time to recharge it. And that therefore in chapter two, verse 59 of the Gita, Krishna says, don't just run on willpower, but run on uh, param dristva. Um, he, he says that you can, you can try willpower, keeping your senses away from the sense objects, um, but ultimately it's not gonna last. But if you're getting greater enjoyment by practicing bhakti, then uh, it's very easy to control. You don't have to even work at controlling the senses. Krishna controls them for us. So, so I'm really glad you brought up this verse um, from the 18th chapter about determination. Because then the next question is, where, where do we direct our determination? And it, the answer is, of course, uh, explain the, um, 22 verses later. Um, bhakti amam nabi no, that's not the one. Manmana bhavam bhakti omajai. Direct our determination to pleasing Krishna. And then he'll give us more determination. Does that make sense, Nandi Mukhi? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that beautiful verse. Yeah, steadfastness. Anything else? Okay, then let us continue and check my notes here. <clears throat> We're going up to 11. Text nine. When the demigods and demons saw that Mandura Mountain had been lifted, they were enlivened and encouraged to begin churning again. The mountain resting on the back of the great tortoise, which extended for 800,000 miles like a large island. O king, when the demigods and demons by the strength of their arms rotated Mandra Mountain on the back of the extraordinary tortoise, the tortoise accepted the rolling of the mountain as a means of scratching his body, and thus he felt a pleasing sensation. So this is not, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. This is actually, Krishna enjoyed uh, the back scratching. We know we, we, we do that. And, you know, uh, I even looked on Amazon. There's some, you know, uh, good back scratchers you can buy. Right? <laughs> like that. And there's some, you know, some pleasure in it. And so Krishna is a person. He's not a, you know, it's a transcendental Lilo and he scratches his back, unlike ours, but. I just thought it was really cool. I can imagine on Wisdom of the Sages, Raghunath going crazy about this one. He's got right back. <laughs> um, 11. Thereafter, Lord Vishnu entered the demons as a quality of passion, the demigods as the quality of goodness, and Vasuki as a quality of ignorance to encourage them and increase their various types of strength and energy. Purport. Everyone in this material world is under the different modes of material nature. There are three different parties in the churning of the Mandra mountain, the demigods who are in the mode of goodness, the demons who are in the mode of passion, and the snake Vasuki who was in the mode of ignorance. Since they were all becoming tired, Vasuki so much that he was almost going to die, Lord Vishnu to encourage them to continue the work of churning the ocean entered into them according to their respective modes of nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance. So empowering Vasuki uh, with ignorance dulled his consciousness and allowed him to continue serving as a churning rope despite the pain that he was feeling being pulled in two different directions. Uh, 
um, therefore, you know, therefore Krishna indirectly as um, time and his, here's, you know, the same point we we're making before, his Maya Shakti, the Shakti, and inspired by the gunas, and in turn, he inspired the three categories of beings, the demigods, the demons, and the serpent, with each of what they needed to be encouraged, strong, and energetic. And then, you know, we hear that manifesting as yet another form, he went on top of the Mandra mountain. We'll hear that in a few minutes, or a minute. So continuing 12, manifesting himself with, here it is, right here. Manifesting himself with thousands of hands, the Lord then appeared on the summit of Mandra Mountain, like another great mountain, and held Mandra Mountain with one hand. In the upper planetary systems, Lord Brahman, Lord Shiva, along with Indra, king, king, the king of heaven, and other demigods, offered prayers to the Lord and showered flowers upon him. The demigods and demons worked almost madly for the nectar, encouraged by the Lord, who was above and below the mountain and who had entered the demigods, the demons, Vasuki, and the mountain itself. Because of the strength of the demigods and demons, the ocean of milk was so powerfully agitated that all the alligators in the water were very much perturbed. Nonetheless, the churning of the ocean continued in this way. Vasuki had thousands of eyes and mouths, from his mouth, he breathed smoke and blazing fire, which affected the demons headed by Paluma, Kaleya, Bali, and Vala. Thus, the demons who appeared like Sharala trees burned by the forest fire gradually became powerless. Because the demigods were also affected by the blazing breath of Vasuki, um, their body, their bodily luster diminished, and their gar garments, garlands, weapons, and faces were blackened by smoke. However, by the grace of the supreme personality of God, clouds appeared on the sea, pouring torrents of rain, and breezes blew, carrying particles of water from the sea waves to give the demigods relief. When nectar did not come from the ocean of milk, despite so much endeavor by the best of the demigods and demons, the supreme personality of God, Ajita, personally began to churn the ocean. The Lord appeared like a blackish cloud. He was dressed with yellow garments. His earrings shone on his ears like lightning and his hair spread over his shoulders. He wore a, garl a garland of flowers and his eyes were pinkish. With his strong, glorious arms, which award fearlessness throughout the universe, he took hold of Vasuki and began churning the ocean using Mandala Mountain as a churning rod. When engaged in this way, the Lord appeared like a beautifully situated mountain named Indranila. The fish, sharks, tortoises, and snakes were most, uh, were most agitated and perturbed. The entire ocean became turbulent. And even the large aquatics like whales, water elephants, crocodiles, and timagila fish, large whales that can swallow smaller whales, came to the surface. While the ocean was being churned in this way, a first it first produced a fiercely dangerous poison called halahala. O king, when that uncontrollable poison was forcefully spreading up and down in all directions, all the demigods, along with the Lord himself, approached Lord Shiva, Sadashiva. Feeling unsheltered and very much afraid, they sought shelter of him. The demigods observed Lord Shiva sitting on the summit of Kailash Hill with his wife, Bhavani for the auspicious development of the three worlds. He was being worshiped by great saintly persons desiring liberation. 
The demigods offered him their obeisances and prayers with great respect. The Prajapati said, Oh, greatest of the demigods, of all the demigods, Mahadeva, super soul of all living entities and the cause of their happiness and prosperity, we have come to the shelter of your lotus feet. Now please save us from this fiery poison, which is spread, uh, which is spreading all over the three worlds. So Prabhupada writes, because this is because the natural question, I'm sure everyone, if you've read ahead, has on their mind is uh, why is Krishna worshiping Lord Shiva? <laughs> why aren't they worshiping Krishna, right? So Prabhupada addresses this and we'll, we'll take a little time to talk about it as well. Purport. Since Lord Shiva is in charge of annihilation, why should he be approached for protection, which is given by Lord Vishnu? Lord Brahma creates and Lord Shiva annihilates, but both Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva are incarnations of Lord Vishnu and are known as Shakjavesha avatars. They are endowed with a special power like that of Lord Vishnu, who is actually all pervading in their activities. Therefore, so he's all, Lord Vishnu is all pervading in Lord Shiva and Brahma's activities. Therefore, whenever prayers for protection are offered to Lord Shiva, actually Lord Krishna, here's the answer, actually Lord Vishnu is indicated, for otherwise Lord Shiva is meant for destruction. Lord Shiva is one of the Ishwars, or the controllers known as Shaktyavesha avatars, therefore he can be addressed as having the qualities of Lord Vishnu. Text 22, and then we'll talk a little bit more, but there's still a little bit more about Lord Shiva. O oh Lord, you are the cause of bondage and liberation of the entire universe because you are its ruler. Now we understand that ultimately that's Krishna. Those who are advanced in spiritual consciousness surrender unto you and therefore you are the cause of mitigating their distresses and you are also the cause of their liberation. We therefore worship your Lordship. Report. Actually, Lord Vishnu maintains and accomplishes all good fortune. If one has to take shelter of Lord Vishnu, why should the demigods take shelter of Lord Shiva? They did so because Lord Vishnu acts through Lord Shiva in the creation of the material world. Lord Shiva acts on, the, on behalf of Lord Vishnu. When, so just like um, if, uh, let's say, the Secretary of State visits a foreign country and the president of that country gives the Secretary of State uh, a valuable gift, it's understood that he's giving that gift to the country and not specifically to, you know, matter of fact, there's all kinds of um, um, conflicts of interest and ethics issues, especially in the State Department, even where I work in the department, but especially in the State Department, if you get gifts, um, <clears throat> they're, they're expect, you know, especially when you're representing, you're representing the state, and therefore it, it belongs to the state. So similarly, Lord Shiva in this context is representing Krishna, so any worship directed at him is ultimately passing through him to Vishnu or Krishna. Okay, I hope that's a little helpful in terms of explanation. Um, when the Lord says in Bhagavad Gita 14.4 that he is the father of all living entities, aham bija pradapita, this refers to actions performed by Lord Vishnu through Lord Shiva. Lord Vishnu is always unattached to material activities and when material activities are to be performed, Lord Vishnu performs them through Lord Shiva. Um, 
Continuing on 23, O Lord, you are self-effulgent and supreme. You create this material by your personal energy, and you assume the names Brahma, Vishnu, and Maheshwara when you are in creation, maintenance, and annihilation. <clears throat> I just want to see if there's anything else I want to say in this. No, I mean, it's, it's, I think I, you know, I said it in... Uh, in brief, I, I had taken all kinds of notes and all kinds of quotes, but I think um, that what I said may suffice. But unless you have some questions about this whole point about Lord Shiva and the prayers to him, okay? And should we continue? So they continue. Um, you are the cause of all causes, the supreme, the self-effulgent, inconceivable, impersonal Brahman, which is originally Parabrahman, you manifest through various potencies in this cosmic manifestation, all glorifying Lord Shiva. O Lord, you are the original source of Vedic literature. You are the original cause of material creation, the life force, the senses, the five elements, the three modes, of, and the Mahatattva. You are eternal time, determination, the two religious systems called truth, satya, and truthfulness, ritta. You are the shelter of the syllable Om which consists of three letters, A-U-M. So we see this um, in the Bhagavatam again and again, when, when they are going to ask Krishna or even the demigod for some, to do something for them, they begin by offering prayers. So they're going to ask a big favor of Lord Shiva, drink all the poison. So there's some first, some prayers offered, some appreciation offered. O father of all planets, learned scholars know that fire is your mouth. The surface of the globe is your lotus feet. Eternal time is your movement. All directions are your ears. And Varuna, master of the waters, is your tongue. O Lord, the sky is your navel. The air is your breathing. The sun are your eyes. The water is your semen. You are the shelter of all kinds of living entities, high and low. The goal, the god of the moon is your mind. The god of the moon is your mind. And the upper planetary system is your head. So he's... Krishna, Vishnu, through Lord Shiva is all pervasive. O Lord, you are the three Vedas personified. The seven seas are your abdomen and the mountains are your bones. All drugs, creepers, and vegetables are the hairs of your body. The Vedic mantras like Gayatri are the seven layers of your body. And the Vedic religious system is the core of your heart. O Lord, the five important Vedic mantras are represented by your five faces, from which the 38 most celebrated Vedic mantras have been generated. Your Lordship being celebrated as Lord Shiva is self-illuminated. You are directly situated as the supreme tr truth known as Param Atma. And one second. Oh Lord, your shadow is seen as irreligion, which brings about varieties of irreligious creatures. The three modes of material nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance are your three eyes. All the Vedic literatures, uh, which are full of verses are emanations from you because their compilers wrote the various scriptures after receiving your glance. O Lord Garisha, since the impersonal Brahman effulgence is transcendental to the material modes of goodness, passion, ignorance, the various directors of this material world certainly cannot appreciate it or even know where it is. It is not understandable even to Lord Brahma, Lord Vishnu, or the King of Heaven, Mahendra. And 32. When annihilation is performed by the flames and sparks emanating from your eyes, the entire creation is burned to ashes. 
nonetheless, you do not know how this happens. What then is to be said of your, your destroying the Daksha Yagya, uh, Chipurasura, and the Kalakuta poison? Such activities cannot be subject matters for prayers offered to you. And purport, since Lord Shiva considers the great acts he performs to be unimportant, what was to be said of uh, what was to be said of counteracting the strong poison produced by the churning? The demigods indirectly prayed that Lord Shiva counteract the Kalakuta poison, which was spreading throughout the universe. Hmm. So there is a, uh, in the Vedic literature, even in life, indirect communication can be very powerful. Uh, you just have to be careful that it's not so subtle that the other person doesn't get it. <laughs> right? You ever been like that? You ever try to be really nice to someone and, you know, kind of sugar, you know, what do they call it? Um, Sugarcoat uh, what you're telling them. And you do it to, to the extreme and people don't actually get what you're trying to get at. But at the same time, um, subtle communication can be very powerful. And very, what is it called? Parokshavad? In, is that right? Ramanandabru? I think it's called Parokshavad. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's said that Krishna is very pleased by it. And you see sometimes, especially in Vrindavan, the loving descriptions between... Um, the uh, devotees is, is, is done in, often in indirect ways. Um, I, I may have told the story before, but um, Prabhupada, uh, Burijan Prabhu gave Prabhupada a ring, a, a gold ring. Um, I think it said Jai Iskam on it, by the way. <laughs> and Prabhupada, uh, Burijan Prabhu was in the room with Srila Prabhupada and he was getting his massage by Shruti Kirti Prabhu. Or maybe it was Hari Sari, I can't remember. And they, they noticed the ring and said, oh, Prabhupada, you have a new ring. Prabhupada said, yes. Who gave it to you? And Prabhupada just looked at Burijan Prabhu and he just said, oh, someone. So, you know, and of course, that was, for Burijan Prabhu, there was a, like the, the little secret between him and Prabhupada. It was very endearing and very, you know, and it was indirect, of course, right? He could have said, oh, Burijan, right here, he did it. Now I said, oh someone <laughs> so uh indirect communications can sometimes be um yeah signs of intimacy uh or or signs of wanting to avoid uh, uh speak in such a way that it'll have the, the most positive effect on someone um it just has to be uh and, and we see this right vedic literature is full of it uh, full, uh, uh, um, yeah, uh, there's so many subtleties and, and we read about these sometimes in the commentaries of the Acharyas. There's so many subtleties, right? Like in the first chapter of the Gita um, uh, and, and, and his devotees do this also. It's, it's, it's also part of what's called Rajniti, um, the uh, intelligent communication of a of a of a king or of a someone in management mm. so just like um, um when Duryodhana is mentioning the great warriors on his side he says bhavam bishma yeah 
etc. So he he's he's talking to um, Drona, right? And he says, "You, Bavam, and then Bishma." So who should we mention first? He doesn't want to upset Bishma. He doesn't want to upset Drona. And whoever you mention first, they kind of take top billing. But then he realized, no, Drona's a Brahmin, and Bishma's a Chatriya. So Bishma won't be offended if he mentions a Brahmin first. But if he does it the other way around, so all these subtle, you know, and we know we, we, we deal in subtle ways in communication sometimes. Sometimes we don't. We're very gross. <laughs> um, sometimes, yeah. Okay, I just thought that was interesting, in, indirect communication. So 33, exalted. By the way, I, I read a whole bunch of things. Any questions or comments on anything we just kind of plowed through kind of quickly? I, I can make a comment. Um, Please. You started off this latest section by, you know, asking why is Krishna this, uh, you know, praying to Shiva and this and that. Um, one of the things when I when I first started learning about this, uh, I actually found it kind of comforting that. Look, in, in other in other religions that I've been exposed to, you know, there's this kind of close competition between the good and bad forces you know uh, god is sort of challenged often and almost seems you know like is he gonna is he gonna turn you know come out on top and then here <laughs> you know the creator krishna god he's not only is he certain you know he's he's under he's got both sides control both destruction and creation it's it was a much broader scope of, of power. I, I don't know how much, first of all, it's just much more cosmic to, to think that everything is so planned and under control. And of course we know that even this Maya, this world of Maya is just a very small sliver of, of the greater yeah. cosmos, which are completely under. So it actually gave me comfort in a way, like, God, there's terrible things that happen, but, you know, there's there's a greater plan that we're just our specks of minds aren't able to fully comprehend. You know, I don't know if that made sense. Makes total sense, and it is good to uh, that humility. You know, uh, like we we said last week, you know, Lord Brahma is as as his intelligence is as great as his life is long, and he goes up to Krishna. I can't figure you out. You know, and then and we're thinking, yeah, well, you know, I'll probably be a pure devotee about three months from now and fully understand Krishna. And then I'll take up in the next hobby, you know, or something like that. But yes, that that humility is. Um, and I thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? Thank you. Okay, then let's. Uh, we'll, I think we might finish this chapter today. Uh, exalted, self-satisfied persons who preach to the entire world. Think of your lotus feet constantly within their hearts. However, when persons who do not know your austerity see you moving with Uma, that's his wife, uh, one name of his wife, they misunderstand you to be lusty. Or when they see you wandering in the crematorium, they mistakenly think you are ferocious and envious. Certainly they are shameless. They cannot understand your activities. Prabhupada writes, Lord Shiva is the topmost Vaishnava. Vaishnava Anam Yatha Shambhu. 
It is therefore said, Even the most intelligent person cannot understand what a Vaishnava like Lord Shiva is doing or how he is acting. Those who are conquered by lusty desires and anger cannot estimate the glories of Lord Shiva, whose position is always transcendental. In all the activities associated with lusty desires, Lord Shiva is, uh, is an implement, something weird about that wording, implement of, and it could be just my computer, of Atmarama, which means self-satisfied. Ordinary persons, therefore, should not try to understand Lord Shiva and his activities. One who tries to criticize the activities of Lord Shiva is shameless. Wow. So, um, better either to try to understand or to say, offer obeisances. <laughs> Very wonderful. Um, even personalities like Lord Brahma and other demigods cannot understand your position, for you are beyond the moving and non-moving cre creation. Since no one can understand you in truth, how can one offer you prayers? It is impossible. As far as we are concerned, we are creatures of Lord Brahma's creation. Under the circumstances, therefore, we cannot offer you adequate prayers, but as far as our abilities allows, we have expressed our feelings. Oh, greatest, oh, one second. Mm, okay, yeah, actually, let's talk about this a second. Um, we, we've spoken about this a lot, but um, we want to be really careful about judging anyone, right? Uh, and especially those dear to Krishna, devotees. Because the mind just by nature jumps to conclusions again and again and again and again. And in Kali Yuga, most of our assumptions are negative. We, 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 you know, we, we, yeah, if we're going to make an assumption about someone, you know, the person who took our parking space, you know, at, uh, at the mall, um, we just assume that they're just cold hearted people, right? you know. You see them running out of the mall a minute later with their pregnant wife. Water just broke, right? And, and our assumptions go out the window. But the, the problem is, I find that even though I, I have experiences like that in life, I still make negative assumptions most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, we have to, a lot of our assumptions are correct, but still we want to, we try to confirm them. And especially when it deals with um, someone who's dear to God, that we don't want to offend them because then Krishna's on our case, right? Um, I can't remember which Vaishnava said it was one of our acharyas, but you know they, they asked, well, but what about if there are injustices, right? Yeah, yeah, by all means, speak up and speak up strongly, but first make sure there is no hate in your own heart. Otherwise, your kirtan of others' faults, which merely embodies the impurities in your own heart, will spread only hate of others, not love of God. Isn't that nice? I'm not nice, but isn't that powerful? Yeah, should I read that again? By all means, speak up strongly. Uh, speak up and speak up strongly if you see injustices. But first, make sure there is no hate in your own heart. Otherwise, your kirtan of others' faults, which merely embodies the impurities of your own heart, will spread only hate of others, not love of God. 
who wrote that? I try. I'm, I have to find it. For some reason, I don't have the reference. Um, well, I'm expert at Kirtan of others' faults. That's my main business. <laughs> Your humility is killing us, Henry. <laughs> Here's another one. This is from. This one I can tell you. It's from a book called "Falling Upward: Is Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life." By uh, Richard Rohr, who's a um, he's a uh, Franciscan monk, a bit of a, a rebel, uh, considered sometimes in the Catholic Church. But um, uh, I know my wife met him once, gave him a Bhagavad Gita, and when she met him in South Africa, and uh, he has some insightful statements. He says, "We all become well disguised mirror image of anything that we fight too long or too directly." Most frontal attacks on evil just produce another kind of evil in yourself, along with a very inflated self-image to boot. Um, wow, that, that's a really interesting, uh, I mean, and it's so pertinent today. I mean, I think you see that in, in the United States where people have whipped themselves up into such a frenzy fighting this, I don't know, for various causes. And, look at them I and mean, it's almost like they've lost sanity any sense of sanity it sometimes or you know. well humanity yeah exactly yeah i got a couple of others now i'm trying to remember where i get all these you know because i i i was a really good good boy i actually prepared for this class last sunday after the class i just immediately sat down so it's been a week and i don't remember where i got all these jewels from but here's one can you put that last one in chat? I'm sorry. Yep. Thanks. Can do that right now. Whoops. I had I actually had the chat open, then I closed it. There we go. Okay, here's the next one. My prayer is to be a Vaishnava. In so many places in Shastra, that is defined as one who is free from the propensity to criticize others. Who else can a Vaishnava be other than one who has no hate? in his or her heart. I hanker, but this was, I think Sachinandan Swami, I hanker for such Sangha. And by Srila Prabhupada's grace, there are many such souls. I just have to be the bee that seeks the honey and not the fly that looks for the sores. Here's another one. The poison of that which you criticize comes to you. Um, criticism is worse than throwing a spear in someone's body because the spear can only pierce the body, but criticism can pierce the heart. Criticism is worse than envy. Envy is when it is in the heart. Criticism is when it comes out. A few thoughts on, uh, on criticism. Any questions or comments on this? Okay. Well, we have a few more, but we have a few more verses to finish this, but I, you know, I don't, want to read real fast and try to squeeze them in the last two minutes. So we will end on uh, this text, which is, so we'll start at 35 next week and we will go into the next chapter. There's a number of chapters of this pastime and the next chapter, uh, the churning of the milk ocean. So we look forward to uh, your association next week. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, 
uh, Krishna's appearing all over the place in this pastime, isn't he? He's he's uh, he's appearing as a tortoise, and then he's on top. He's on top of the mountain. He's he's the mountain. And some says he's underneath the mountain. Yeah. And there's going to be more. He's going to appear as Mohini Murti and all kinds of cool things. So thank you. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a wonderful week. You too. Thank you so much. Yeah. So great. Hare Krishna.